This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. And welcome to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Paul Stoller, who is the author of the book, Wisdom from the Edge, Writing Ethnography in Turbulent Times, published by Cornell University Press. Dr. Stoller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Reagan. Uh, It's it's wonderful to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you about your book today. And I have an introductory question And um, to begin with, you've written 11 books, um, as well as many articles and public writing. Uh, You focused your fieldwork over a very long period of time with the Songhe people in Niger. So how did you come to research Niger? And, you know, how did you come to write Wisdom from the Edge? Well, um, uh, my story goes back a long time because uh, I first went to the Republic of Niger many, many decades ago as a Peace Corps volunteer. And I lived there for two years in the Songhai-speaking area of Western Niger. And uh, I, in that two-year period, um, I taught English as a second language, but I, I, I fell profoundly in love with the people and the culture there, and I l- learned to speak the Songhai language fluently. And um, so once my two-year stint was up, I tried to find ways, how could I get back to Niger? And I decided that I would go back, I would go to graduate school and I first studied uh, linguistics. And then uh, from, the, from, uh, from, from my linguistics background, I went on into social anthropology and I was able to get um, a research grant um, to do my doctoral research uh, in the western part of Niger in some of the same towns where I had been a Peace Corps volunteer, actually. Hmm. And so how did you uh, come to write Wisdom from the Edge? Well, Wisdom from the Edge is uh, the culmination. Actually, it's it's my 16th mm. book. And, <coughs> excuse me. And um, it's sort of the culmination of my my apprenticeship to healers among, in the Songhai, among, among Songhai people in Western Niger. So, <coughs> um, and... As I thought back to all the all the period of time that I um, that I was doing my research, um, I was profoundly linked to one particular person, my teacher Adamujani Tongo, uh, who lived to be 106 years old. Who was a great Sohanchi, which is a, Sohanchis are um, healers that trace their descent all the way back to Sunni Ali Bear, the king of the Songhai Empire in the 15th century. A direct line. So he was a direct descendant of Sunni Ali Bear. And he was um, you know, one of the wisest people that I ever met in my life. 
And reflecting back on everything that I learned from him, I, all of my work really is, in a sense, an attempt to bring his wisdom uh, to a, a larger audience. And um, so Wisdom from the Edge is really a compilation of my thinking and reading and doing uh, anthropology over the last 35, 40 years. And uh, I hope that it is a tribute to his, uh, his wisdom and what he has to teach us uh, about living in the world today. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, and I really enjoyed reading um, all of the different, you know, the different chapters and about your mentor, Adamo Genitangu. And so I wanted to ask um, about the introduction of the book. You write about this representational dilemma whereby, you know, anthropological texts follow this expected formula and they can create what you call right. turgid texts of limited appeal. And so you advocate for artful ethnography in the book. And this is where writers uh, sensuously articulate dimensions of locality, language, and character. Again, I'm quoting you. And so I wondered if you mm -hmm. could talk about what you mean by artful ethnography. Well, first of all, um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of anthropology um, is, uh, I hate to say it, but it's badly written. Um, and uh, you, you, you don't find... Um, one of my quandaries is, is that anthropologists have an awful lot to say about conditions in the world today, ecological conditions, social conditions, political uh, situations. And yet our message, and it's based on slow, slowly gathered fieldwork over many, many years of, uh, of, of study and thought. And, but our message uh, more or less falls on deaf, deaf ears. Uh, and that one of the reasons for that is that it's written uh, with lots of jargon, it's written for an audience of fellow specialists, um, and therefore the 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 message that we have, which is an important message today about uh, our relation to nature, our relation to one another, uh, gets you know lost in the fog of institutional expectation. You know, and so so um, um, a lot of what I've done over during my time as an anthropologist has been trying to forefront uh, narrative uh, as a way of bringing people and place to a much larger audience than just a group of fellow, fellow specialists. So I, I've tried to do that uh, and, uh, in, my, in my writing. And um, more recently, I have uh, developed, over the last 15 years, I've been giving writing workshops, ethnographic writing workshops, uh, mostly in Europe, but some in the United States. One workshop in Ghana, and, um, and there I get uh, usually postgraduate uh, students, uh, PhD students, recent PhD students, um, and we learn how to. We do exercises to uh, sort of unlock the creativity of, of, of artful ethnography. And artful ethnography, uh, what it really is, is uh, using the senses to recreate. Um, the space of ethnography. So uh, evoking the space and place uh, where of the people about whom we try to write, crafting dialogue, uh, and um, constructing character. Uh, so these are these are all techniques used by by fiction writers and techniques used by uh, creative nonfiction writers. And so in that first chapter, <clears throat> I have a number of examples of how. Uh, fiction writers and creative nonfiction writers 
and, and several anthropologists as well, how they uh, evoke space, how they craft dialogue, and how they construct character uh, as sort of models for uh, ethnographic writing. And um, so artful ethnography is an ethnography that, you know, focuses on narrative, focuses on character, space and place, focuses on how people talk, uh, such that when someone finishes reading a book that incorporates those elements, uh, they will know, uh, they'll have a sense of who these people are or what they're like, what their lives are like, the texture of their social lives. But they will also have a sense, you know, they'll, they'll have a sense of uh, their, the, the humanity of these, these people and what they have to teach us about living in the world. And so all of that is sort of a call for um, uh, a call for uh, a more sort of uh, artistically engaged uh, uh, ethnographic writing in which these elements are, are used and uh, which means that the, uh, the scope, the, the, the breadth of the audience that uh, we might attract would be expanded considerably such that our insights, uh, our, our, our anthropological insights might be better distributed, better known, um, and better appreciated uh, by the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, and so, speaking of character, in you know, chapter one, you talk about the quality of the narrative can be related to the thickness of the relationships the anthropologist has with mm-hmm. other people. And one of the, one of the things you write about is that many texts are missing vulnerable characters. And these are uh, imperfect human beings whose life stories compel readers or audiences to connect. And I found this really interesting because I'm currently working on a book right now. And I, and I thought about this and I thought, huh, um, you know, who are my vulnerable characters? How do I know, you know, how do I know that they exist? How can I put them in there? And so, you know, this was really um, compelling to me. And I wondered if you could talk about uh, these vulnerable characters and what they bring to an ethnographic text. Well, what vulnerability does, if if one writes, you know, about vulnerable characters, one can also include oneself in that that uh, that exercise. Uh, if if one uh, sort of opens oneself up to uh, vulnerability, what it what it does is it creates a connection between the reader and the writer. So when a character is vulnerable, uh, they're human, they have strengths, and of course they have weaknesses. Uh, that's all, all part of making them the character of who they might be. And so what that does is it creates this, you know, this fundamental connection. And when you, can, when you create that kind of fundamental connection between a character on the page or the writer connects with the reader or the filmmaker connects with the, with the audience. Um, what that does is it, in my experience, it, it compels the reader to turn the page, which is the great goal of any writing, especially in this age of distraction in which we live. Um, and um, it compels the viewer, if you're watching a film, to continue to, to identify with the character, uh, care about the character, and continue to watch the film. So it's a vulnerability is, you know, it's, 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 it's in a, it's a really very essential aspect of, uh, of character presentation. And if you are able to pull it off, uh, you will have people, you know, reading, reading your text and continuing to read it and recommending it maybe to someone else or watching your film. You know, one of the, 
the lights of uh, the films of Jean Rouche, my mentor uh, in, in Niger and in France, was that his characters, you know, they had, they were flawed. They had multiple elements to them. Uh, they were funny. They were sad. Uh, you know, they, there's betrayal. Uh, all elements of the, of the human condition and what makes us human beings. And so if you have that sense of vulnerability uh, in your characterizations of, in, in your text, then um, it draws readers into the text and makes them think about it. Maybe it makes them think something they might have not thought before. Maybe it uh, makes them feel something they haven't felt before. And if you're you're doing that, then you're doing your job as a writer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's a a lesson that I'm going to take with me as I continue to write this book. Um, Well, well, I I wish you every success. Thank you. Um, And so you already mentioned this, your mentor, Adamu Jenitangu in Niger, Mm -hmm. um, figures quite prominently throughout the book. And, you know, you write that um, over these 17 years, Adamo Genitango guided me to the portal of an incomprehensible world. And so I really liked the stories that you share um, with your mentor. There was one, I think, where he gave you some mixture to throw over your shoulder in an airplane. And you said, you know, how do I do this? And he said, well, you just have to find a way, Paul. And uh, and you Mm -hmm. found, found the way. And, you know, um, and you t- share these stories of these experiences in his compound. How did he come to take you on as an apprentice? And what do you think contributed to the transformative nature of this relationship? Well, um, when I first went to Niger, I taught English as a second language in a town called Tilbury, which is where Adamu Genitongo lived. And the secondary school was at the base of a dune. And so I, I lived in a you know, concrete bungalow with the other uh, faculty members there. And, uh, you know, and I would frequently in, in while well, I was, you know, at the late afternoons when I was you know, just finished teaching, I'd hear music coming from the top of the dune. And I didn't pay much attention to it at first, but after a while, curiosity got the better of me. And so I trudged up to the dune uh, and to what turned out to be his compound. And there was a ceremony going on. Um, and I, I, laid, you know, I knew what it was. It was a spirit possession ceremony going on. So there are people in there dancing, and there I heard these, this uh, the cry of the one-string violin, a high-pitched sort of whine, and then there were gourd drums being played. So you have the clack, whine, clack, and so uh, this old man came up to the entrance of his compound, and he said, "Please come in, please, you know, come and see our ceremony." So um, I, I walked in there, and he was standing next to me, and I was uh, on the edge of the audience, and the music was playing. And the music was extraordinarily rhythmic. And I, I started, I like to dance. So I started moving my body, started moving my body. And then uh, Adamu Genitongo said, well, you know, why don't you try it? Watch them and why don't you try dancing? So I went, you know, I was, uh, you know, 20, 23 years old. I had no worries whatsoever. So I went out to the dance. I went out to the dance, uh, dance ground and the musicians picked up the pace and I started dancing, uh, doing as best I could, you know, to, 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 to mimic the dancers that I had been witnessing. And then uh, everyone thought that was, that was really nice. And they sort of applauded a little bit. And he took me aside and he said, you know, you have shown, you have shown us respect for our customs. We want, you know, I want you to come back. I want you to come back and be, be a witness to our, our rituals, be a witness to these uh, spirit possession ceremonies. And so um, 
whenever there was a spare possessions, when I heard the music, I would go up and I befriended him and his family and all the people who were up there. And uh, I saw lots of spirit possession, lots of uh, people getting, uh, mediums getting taken by spirits. I began to recognize some of the music. Uh, and that was my, you know, uh, that was my introduction to him. And, but then, you know, my, my time uh, in Tilbury as a Peace Corps volunteer was coming to an end. But that experience sort of was a compelling factor to, uh, to make me want to go to graduate school and come back, uh, uh, come back to study this kind of thing. So, um, so I, I, I did my initial field work, not in Tilbury, but in, a, in another place called Mehana, which is on the opposite bank of the Niger River, on the west bank of the Niger River. And I, uh, I was looking at spirit, you know, I was looking at the com competing discourses of Islam uh, and spirit possession uh, in the local politics of this particular town. And so I would witness spirit possession ceremonies. And, and then uh, one day, um, one day, um, uh, every, so I'd, you know, do my, I do my interviews. I'd talk to people. Uh, it was too hot to do much in the, in the afternoon. So I'd go into my mud brick house and I had a Smith Corona typewriter and I typed up, I would type up my field notes and, uh, People had, you know, people would come into my house just to watch me type, you know, just they thought that was kind of a cool thing to do. So, you know, that's why I always had an audience while I was typing up my field notes. <laughs> um, and um, I noticed uh, after a while that um, there are these birds that had built a mud nest in the rafters of my ceiling, which was made of sticks and, and mud. And they began to poop all over my floor. And uh, my being sort of, you know, sort of antiseptic uh, American, I thought this was intolerable. So I, I knocked down the nests and they flew off. And then uh, two weeks later, they'd come, they'd build another nest and they, they, they stayed in the house. After a while, I, I forgot, I, I just uh, said the hell with it. Uh, I'm not going to bother, uh, you know, messing with these birds. And I just forgot about them. And then one day, while well, I was trying to get my field notes, uh, you know, and describing a spirit possession ceremony that I had recently seen, uh, one of the birds pooped on my head, right? And uh, so I said, I lost it. I said, I can't stand this. I can't stand this place. This place is just, uh, I knock the nest down, they come back. I knock it down, they come back. Now they pooped on my head. What? And then one of the guys said, uh, Alhamdulillah, he said, praise be to God. I said, well, what? <laughs> Praise be to God. I said, well, how can you say that? He said, you've been pointed out. And I said, well, you know, no, of course I've been pointed out. <laughs> and he said, no, no, no. Come to my house tonight and begin to learn incantations. I am a surko, which is a kind of healer. And so I went to his house and, you know, I decided, well, that wasn't, that wasn't my dissertation project, but it was such a, uh, an opportunity. I decided I would take it. So I crossed the threshold, um, uh, and I, you know, I had plenty of notes on my my dissertation topic, but then I went uh, to his house and he began to teach me. I memorized, started to be memorize incantations. After about a three or four months period, I would learned lots of incantations. Um, his father uh, initiated me and had me eat some weird stuff, uh, tree barks, and uh, mixed with millet grains that would transform me to uh, an apprentice. Right. And, and, and then they said, you know, well, you know, we, uh, you know, we can't really teach you much more. You have to go to our teacher. And I said, well, who is that? And he said, well, he lives in Tilbury. You know who he is. 
And I said, you mean uh, Adamu Genitongo? And he said, yeah, he's our teacher. You have to learn from him. So I, you know, I left uh, Mehana, the town where I was. I went to back to Tilbury, and um, uh, I clapped in front of his house. He came, you know, gave me a big smile, and it had been four or five years since I had seen him. And he gave me a big smile and said, "What took you so long?" Mm-hmm. Right, and then, and that was the beginning of our apprentice, our our, our master, um, master. Uh, uh, mentor-mentee relationship, master-apprentice relationship. So I, I lived in his compound whenever I was in Niger. I watched what he did. I watched him treat clients. I watched him officiate spirit possession ceremonies. He taught me to go into the bush to look for plants. Um, and uh, I, learned, I learned quite a bit from him in that 17-year period. And that's how I, I got into this kind of stuff. And then... Um, you know, and I learned learned so much from him. But uh, and uh, then after after he died, uh, after he died, uh, I didn't go back as often as much. It was a very you know very painful loss for me, and so I, I started doing field work in New York City because um, I found it too too painful to go back to Niger. And there was other other circumstances that involved as well that made it less desirable to return um, to, the, to, the, to my field site. So you also talk about Jean Rouche in the, in the book, and uh, he was the, a filmmaker who you, who you just mentioned. Uh, you've also written a book about him called Cinematic Griot, and but in this book, Wisdom from the Edge, you describe his approach to the world and you offer these five rules to approach life garnered from Rusha's outlook and practices. And I'm not going to go through all the rules, but but the first rule is to fully engage in the moment. And you talk about rule number four, which is to open yourself to the world and accept vulnerability, um, which you've already talked about a little bit. And so I wondered um, just how these rules, uh, you know, how they shape you know, approaches to anthropology? Well, I think, I mean, field work, uh, anthropological field work is a purely subjective experience. And very often it is uh, existentially transformative. Uh, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's filled with stress and strain. Uh, it's uh, very difficult to, you know, sometimes it's difficult to stay focused on what you're doing. But also, um, I think one of the key lessons that Roosh taught me about fieldwork is to be flexible. In other words, if say you have a, a proposal and you have a, a, a study that you that you've been maybe you've been granted funding for it, and you're making some progress on that, but then something else happens that piques your interest and you you find it absolutely fascinating. Someone's inviting you, like um, uh, the, the the Sorco who said, the bird pooped on your head, you know, well, what, what, you know, what, what should I do? Should I continue with my, my, my dissertation proposal? Uh, I'm sorry, dissertation research, or should I just step into this other world? And in filmmaking, they have the same kind of thing where you may be thinking you're going to do a film about X, Y, or Z, and then something happens. A character pops up who is, you know, cinematic and very fascinating. And you take your, you know, the, the key is you don't stick with your program. You follow the person who's of cinematic interest, right? So, and Roosh was, uh, the way he did films was that way. He was very, you know, he is very sort of innovative. 
So the film would have sort of make itself as time went on. It was, you know, sort of a, uh, an interesting system of innovation. That's how he made Le Maitre Fou. It's how he made Jaguar, uh, two of his most fantastic films. Uh, they mm-hmm. were, you know, sort of lots of innovation involved. Uh, lots of, uh, you know, uh, uh, character input to uh, say, let's try this. Or why not try that? So that kind of, you know, so you need to be focused, uh, obviously, on what you're doing, but you also need to be kind of uh, sort of epistemologically flexible to know when to, you know, say, okay, well, that's good, but this, you know, I need to shift and go in this direction because this looks like it's very fruitful. So uh, those kinds of lessons are very important. But I think the most important thing uh, is to come back to vulnerability, and that is that, you know, uh, uh, if you as a field worker, um, if you open yourself to the world in which you're trying to understand, which you're trying to understand, open your being to it, people will recognize that, right? Uh, you know, I, I think I may have given the example in the book about the, the art or, artist Paul Clay, who said that to paint, you know, to, to paint the forest, he had to open his being to it, and let the forest penetrate him, and he would paint as a way of you know, sort of breaking out of that uh, breaking out of that that cycle. And I think it's the same thing with ethnographic fieldwork: is if you open yourself up to the field and let it penetrate you, um, you're going to you're going to you know, people will recognize that first of all. Uh, they'll recognize that, that that's sort of a, a you're genuine in a sense. You are trustworthy. Uh, they will recognize uh, your humanity, your vulnerability. And it creates, as I said before, the connection, the kind of connection. And I also think that, um, you know, uh, it creates uh, uh, a kind of, uh, uh, as I said, vulnerability. And um, it's a very, very important kind of thing, but it's, it's risky. So it's not easy to do this sort of thing. It's not easy to say, I'm just going to open myself to the experience of, say, healing and sorcery, right? But if you don't do that, uh, then um, you may understand a little bit of, say, a phenomenon like healing or sorcery or spirit possession. But if you don't open yourself up to it, people will recognize that. And uh, so what you, what you will get will be maybe a fraction of what you could understand otherwise. And, and one, one thing leads to another, as Jean Rousseau like to say, you know, one film gives, gives birth to another, or one incident gives birth to another, if and only if you are, you know, you are open, which is signifying that you're existentially vulnerable. And I, I think that that, you know, it's, it's not for everyone, but it is, uh, I think, um, something that really does make a big difference when you're doing anthropological fieldwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked what you were saying about um, opening yourself to the world and, and the kind of risk of it and managing the kind of fraught emotions around fieldwork. Um, I had this one experience where it was kind of years into the field where I was in Brazil and I was interviewing a filmmaker and he gave me these directions to come to his house where I had to take, this was in Rio de Janeiro, I had to take a bus, bus across town and then get take a boat you know, go to this, go to this dock and tell them I'm going to this house and, and take a boat to here. And I remember, you know, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, and how am I going to do this? And I, obviously I managed to do it, but I remember just realizing in that moment, okay, it's about the journey and I just have to submit myself to it and kind of, you know, just, just give in to the moment and to the, you know, to the, 
to the path. Um, and so that, that, that took a, a while for me to actually get there, but I think it's, it reflects what you were talking about, about, you know, well, it's, just, it's, let, just letting go a little it's bit. It's one of my favorite, uh, my favorite quips. Yeah. So um, I really appreciated your attention to the ineffable qualities of human life. And you write about learning divination from different diviners, but uh, there seems to be like a limit to transfer this knowledge of divination. And some people have the gift and other people don't. And you write about kind of accepting the limits of knowledge and that there are things we simply can't know. And I wondered about, you know, navigating these limits with when people expect us to be the authority figures. Um, and, you know, so how do we navigate this, this authority that we are expected to have, but also the knowing that there are limits to knowledge? Well, um, I think the most important thing that a scholar can say is, I don't know. And <clears throat> when I've told my students, when they ask me a question that I don't know an answer to, and I say, well, I don't know, uh, I have to think about that, or uh, I have to think about that, or uh, you know, I may, not, may never have an answer to that. To that. So there, there's an awful lot. You know, to, to, so to, for me, that's a, it's an important thing to uh, we, we cannot know everything. And there's some things uh, in, say, in the worlds of uh, sorcery, healing, uh, spirit possession, there are some things that um, uh, the knowledge is reserved for the for elders. Uh, and uh, so if you're a, a young researcher, you, you don't have access to that kind of thing, uh, even if you've, you know, you know you've uh, made yourself vulnerable, you open yourself up. Uh, you're not old enough to, to receive this, this particular piece of knowledge. Um, and, um, so there are lots of, you know, there are lots of, uh, uh, limits to, to knowledge, but I think uh, when you acknowledge that it creates a sense of, uh, I think it's important to create a sense of academic modesty that, you know, we, we, we cannot have, uh, a theory cannot necessarily solve all of our problems, um, and uh, it suggests also um, uh, a more collaborative approach to understanding uh, understanding the world, understanding ethnographic worlds. Uh, and uh, there's a fabulous book by um, Timothy Morton and Dominique Boyer called uh, um, Hypersubjects. It's on, on becoming human again. And basically, it's about the sort of edifice of uh, scholarship. Uh, of the of the uh, academic institutions and uh, built on what you were just saying about about authority authoritative knowledge and um, you know and even given that you know the uh, when we we reach the, the the limits of what we can understand uh, it doesn't mean we don't we 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 start uh, not uh, trying to uh, understand why this particular ritual works or why it does not. But to understand that there are some, there are, you know, the song, I have a wonderful way of dealing with this issue. They say, you know, the, uh, the, this, the, the people that I train with would say, well, you know, I've learned a lot. And, but what I know is, um, what I know is, is that uh, I've in incorporated everything that my, my fathers and fathers, fathers, mothers and mothers, mothers have, in, you know, have mm -hmm. taught. And it's been passed down from generation to generation. And that's what I know. And then that's my, uh, I am a custodian of that knowledge. Uh, so I want to, and I, you know, I nurture it. I guard it. 
uh, I make sure that it's not forgotten. And then as, a, uh, as, a, as an elder, my responsibility is to convey that knowledge to the next generation. That's my greatest responsibility, Can, can convey that knowledge to the next generation, knowing that it's not the full picture, knowing that what I convey will be used in the next generation um, in a way that maybe I can't even imagine or in a way that suits their own purpose, given the circumstances in which they live. So the, the, I, I, feel that, I feel that about anthropology. I feel like you know, people have come before me, uh, had a lot to teach me. Um, I've incorporated that uh, knowledge. Uh, I've incorporated it and you know, written about it, et cetera, et cetera. And that there is my body of work. And so uh, it's there for uh, to be consumed. Uh, I'm the custodian of my 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 corpus of work, but uh, I realize that you know people will you know if if people continue to read what it is about, and uh, again getting back to the artful uh, artful uh, ethnography is that art, artful ethnographies tend to live on. They don't uh, you know. They're, they're read by, uh, they have the potential of being read by uh, a larger audience. If you have narratives, narr- there's something about narrative that make people want to talk about it, make people remember things. Um, and so uh, once, you know, uh, the next generation of scholars may look at what I have written and they will say, well, that's an interesting thing, but I can use, I, that triggers an idea to go in a different direction. And so, uh, that's the way that, that, that that's the way knowledge has been trained in in the sort of uh, master apprentice kind of relationship. That's the way knowledge has been transmitted, and that's how it continues to be translated from generation to generation. And and each successive step, um, you know, it gets refined. Uh, it gets re- refined and the, in a way that's suited to the situation in which people find themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that for for song healers, I think for uh, anthropologists as well is that that's our you know the, our mission is to con- is to uh, gather the gather the information uh, you know uh, and produce the knowledge uh, knowing that it's not going to be perf- perfect that there are limits to it and then passing it on to the next generation for them and for the next generation of scholars or healers or whatever to do with it what they will uh, in the best way that mm-hmm. they can. Yeah, and so I wanted to go back to this. You you just mentioned this artful ethnography, and um, and you you've already described it for us. And in the book, you know, you advocate for using smell, taste, sound, touch, and the visual to communicate these sensuous aspects of experience. And you provide these examples from spirit possession ceremonies, um, and your mentor's compound. Um, I, but and you talked about this. You you give these ethnographic writing workshops. Um, about this method of writing. And I wondered if you could give us a glimpse into the workshop and t- t- say a little bit about what kind of activities or exercises are you doing or, you know, what, what is the workshop like that you're, you know, that you're giving people? Okay. Well, they, they, they vary depending on the, um, the last one I did was in Germany, in Göttingen, Germany at the Max Planck Institute. And there we did a four-day workshop. I've done, uh, I've done it online. Uh, during the pandemic, I did it online. Um, and, uh, sometimes I've done, you know, four day workshops. I did, uh, uh, during the pandemic, I did one at the graduate Institute at the university of Geneva. Uh, that was a whole semester. Uh, and 
usually the most uh, usually there are four to five days, and we the first thing I do is I give them uh, a famous um, scholar's text one you know one paragraph of uh, you know from uh, I often use Pierre Bourdieu right is you know a great great thinker but one of the worst writers mm-hmm. I can think of you know it's just terrible writing. Um, it's turgid. It's full of. It, it's much more complicated than it needs to be. So I pick out a. I can. I, I usually use the book Distinction. Um, you know, his sort of magnum opus, and you can turn to any page and find bad writing. And so I that I have them uh, go. I have them uh, try to translate uh, a paragraph of Bourdieu, such that your mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, daughter, or son could understand it, what he's getting at, right? And so what, what the, the whole idea of that is people, we're, so, we're so trained in graduate school to follow this sort of model of sort of, you know, plain style and using, uh, you know, demonstrating our mastery of the discipline by using uh, you know, jargon, uh, and, you know, complex sentences, um, you know, passive voice, all that kind of thing. And um, so what this does is it presents that uh, in, you know, by, by usually a, a famous uh, anthropologist or sociologist. And I challenge them to try to break it down into a simpler language that is accessible to not just uh, highly trained specialists, but to a sort of, uh, you know, a general lay reader. Right. And so that, that's just the beginning. And um so we have fun, you know, people, uh, we have, you know, people start writing and then as in most writing workshop type things, uh, people come up with some stuff. We, we read it to each other. So if I have a group of 15 or so, we go around the table, everyone you know, reads what they have produced. And some people come up with really creative solutions. They do like mini plays. Sometimes they come up with, uh, you know, really, really uh, uh, creative solutions to the the problem that Bourdieu is putting out there. And then some people try to stick to the text, but make it a little bit less convoluted. But the whole purpose of that is just to shake up, to make people aware of these kind of writerly conventions that are so ingrained into the into the sort of uh, epistemology of uh, academia, <coughs> academic representation. So then, um, so then we take a break, uh, and then we come back, and we uh, I, I have uh, I have reading lists. I have you know writers that I think uh, they should read to get a sort of model of uh, the three things we work on. We work on we work on space, evoking space and place. We work we we work on uh, crafting dialogue, and we work on the construction of character. And so for you know space and place, there are some fabulous. There's some fabulous uh, uh, anthropological writers, like a guy named Piers Vitebsky, who you know, was, uh, was at Cambridge University, who works in Siberia, and he describes the Siberian landscape with breathtaking detail. Um, I have examples from fiction writers, um, nonfiction writers. Uh, you know, right here I can see in my, I have one by uh, Lucas Basir, um, um, which is called Running Out. It's about water in the high plains of Kansas. Uh, 
but he describes landscapes with just a absolute breathtakingly breathtaking beauty. So you feel like you're there. So I ask people to pretend that uh, you know, pick out a landscape from your research, some a building, a stream, uh, a tree, um, and think of that space or place as being something that is alive with memory. And, you know, so it's not just, it's, it's not just an inert space. It's, it's alive with memory. What, what memories are in this, what has this tree witnessed? Mm. What has this stream seen? What has this path, what stories does it hold? And so that sort of unlocks the creative, uh, creative aspects of uh, a, a person's particular field site or space or place. And then they, uh, you know, then we take, you know, people write, uh, you know, we have a writing session. And then uh, we come back and we read and then we respond to one another. And, uh, and the reason for reading and responding is that when you do a, a workshop like this, uh, what you're doing is creating not just uh, exercises, but you're creating a, a community of writers. And writers often gather together and read what they've written to one another as to get feedback. And... Uh, you know, it's, it, it builds one's confidence, you know, and, uh, and people have, you know, critical comments, but they're done, you know, the way we do it, at least in my workshops, the critical comments are done in a way that is very, that's very constructive. And so I've been doing this for like 15 years and uh, they have been, you know, and uh, many of the people who've participated in these workshops are now publishing books, which makes me really, really uh, proud and, and, and makes me feel good. Um, and uh, I'm still in touch with almost everyone that has been uh, in one of my workshops. And, uh, you know, so that, so the, the space, and, you know, the thing about space and places is that one of the things that ethnography is really, in, in one, of the, one of its important features is that it gives the reader a sense of space and place. It evokes space and place. And if you do that, the reader is going to get a sense of, you know, this is where these people are living, right? This is, this is, this, uh, the, these conditions create a set of context constraints for how they live their lives. And if you can reproduce that, um, that's, you know, uh, that's, that, that's really uh, fantastic for your text. Then the second element uh, is crafting dialogue, which is the most difficult uh, thing to do because it's really, really hard to reproduce speech uh, on the page and the text, very very difficult. So I have them read, uh, you know, Zora Neale Hurston, who is one of the uh, uh, mules and men. It's filled with dialogue, fantastic dialogue, you know. So uh, I have the, I have them read some other people as well, um, and uh, you know, and then they uh, I say, well, think about a dialogue that you had. You know, and most dialogues in anthropology are. You know, they're, they're transcripts of interviews, right? With a big a block of mm -hmm. text in the a block of text in a in a book. Well, for me, when I you know see a long, long block of text in a book, I tend to you know skip over it. I mean, it's just and it's it's there's no you have no sense of what this person sounds like. You have no sense of you know the idiosyncrasies of their speech, which might make them interesting. Um, uh, so I advocate creating recreating dialogue the way you see it in a in a work of fiction or creative nonfiction where uh, people are actually engaging with one another as they're talking to one another. So we do that. And people find that to be the, the most, I mean, for me, I have the greatest respect for playwrights 
because they're able to underscore, revoke literary themes just through the use of dialogue, which is, you know, amazingly difficult thing to do, uh, but they're able to do it. So I have, you know, great admiration for that. I myself have had, you know, that's, I find that the most difficult thing um, uh, when I write is to, is to recreate, you know, to craft dialogue. It's, it's a very difficult thing, but it's good. The more you do it, the better you get at it, you know? So, and I have people read uh, mystery writers, you know? So Walter Mosley is one of, you know, he's a great dialogue writer, just great dialogue writer, um, uh, you know, and uh, there are a number of other mystery writers that were really, really very good at dialogue. So I have people read those kinds of things as models of one way to do it, you know, one way, one way to approach your own uh, dialogue material. And then the third thing is uh, I have, uh, we construct character. You know, what is it about a person that makes them unique? Uh, is it the way they stand? Do they have a facial grim? Do they have a facial uh, expression that they hold? Do they grin a lot? Uh, what are their eyes like? Uh, how do they? How, what's their posture like? How do they walk in a particular way? Do they repeat a certain phrase again and again and again? You know, like my teacher, Adam Agenda Hunger, used to always used to say, bup, 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 you know, just as an emphasis. And so what is it about uh, a person that makes them stand out from everyone else? Um, and so how do you how do you do that? And again, I have people read mostly fiction writers uh, and how they craft character. And uh, so, um, you know, it may be the, the, the way they present themselves, the clothes they're wearing. Uh, and very often that that character construction corresponds to you know the way they talk as well. So all these things, when you put them all together, uh, at the end we have uh, an exercise where we we put all the things they've been working on together into a coherent uh, essay that features you know place and space, uh, dialogue and character. And then I tell them, I said, you know, people always raise the issue. Well, you know, you know, we're I'm working in a university, and you know, this kind of writing is not, you know, it's not, uh, it's not going to help me get tenure. Uh, you know, I can't get a grant to do this kind of thing. And I say, look, it's this is just uh, providing you with a toolkit, and you can just, you know, you can use it now or pack it away and use it when when it's right for you to use it. But you know, remember that, you know, I use the example of. Uh, going to uh, anthropology meetings, right, which are chaotic events, to say the least, where people read 15-minute papers, right, uh, usually read from the text. And I, I asked them, I said, how, ma uh, how many um, papers other than your own do you, do you remember listening to and re remember after you've left the, you know, the, 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 the convention? Um, and I tell them, for me, the ones I remember, and there are very few and far between, uh, one was Margaret Mead, who gave a talk, and she told stories, and she was funny, and and she used the stories and humor to get to the point that she was making, and a number of other people are able to do that. So there's something about uh, this sort of narrative approach that involves space and place, dialogue and character, that connects with people. So the, you know, Jerome Bruner, the, the late Jerome Bruner, who was a cognitive psychologist, but wrote a lot about um, two modes of, uh, of uh, sort of evoking reality. One was a scientific mode, which, you know, plain style and logical kind of reasoning, which is, you know, 
uh, which has stood you know, stood the test of time for a long, long time. Then he then he said that there's the narrative mode of reality, and he said this is you know, and he says that when people when people remember the way culture is conveyed, the way um, knowledge is passed from generation to generation, is through stories. There's something about a story that makes, uh, and he doesn't really know what it is, but there's something about a story that mm-hmm. makes you remember it. It's something about it that makes you remember it, right? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and you may tell it to someone else, right? It may be slightly, so there's something about that, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. the narrative construction of reality, he called it. There's something about that that is very human. And so I guess, you know, one of the things that I try to advocate is uh, to make our ethnographies as anthropologists, to make our ethnographies uh, more, more narrative-like so that people, when they read what you've written in this narrative, and they say, well, that was a good story. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll remember it, right? Maybe they will find it useful. Uh, maybe they'll tell, it to the, tell the story to their kids or their colleagues. And, and then all the stories, of course, have a kind of embedded theoretical point, right? And so Carol, uh, Carol McGranahan has written beautifully about the poignancy of storytelling in anthropology. And, that, and she says it's not just, you know, the story is the point uh, of doing anthropology, she says. And I quite agree with her. Oh, absolutely. I, I, those workshops sound, sound wonderful where um, whenever I teach ethnographic research methods, after the students have spent the entire semester doing these different exercises, uh, at the end, we have a writing workshop and they get to write up some of their, you know, some mm-hmm. of their observations and that they really love it. And it's almost like the treat at the end of the semester. And I love what you were saying mm-hmm. about creating community because a lot of people either say they don't like writing or, you know, we know that writing can, can sometimes be painful, but it sounds like in these workshops, you know, the light, the load, maybe, maybe a little bit lighter in, you know, going at it together. We actually have fun. <laughs> we, we have, you know, and we laugh and we, and we, uh, we take breaks for lunch. We go to dinner after the, after the sessions. And, um, you know, we have, uh, we, it, every time I've done it, uh, there's been this sort of sense of community that's generated and, um, and people have said, you know, uh, they may not, they may not apply what they've learned immediately, but uh, eventually they do. Um, and uh, in my experience, at least. And so I think that, you know, it, I think uh, that's one thing about r- writers in general. So a lot of writers, you know, have writing groups where they share things and that kind of camaraderie because mm-hmm. writing is a struggle. I mean, it's a struggle. It's not easy to do. Uh, and it's, it's kind of lonely. It's isolated. You're standing in front of your screen or, you're, or sitting in front of your screen, typing away. If you're stuck, maybe you're, you've reached a, a fantastic passage. But no one writes anything. And it, well, books, for example. Uh, no book is written alone. You need, uh, I've never, I've always had help people help me, collaborate with me, read what I've written, uh, save me from myself. And, uh, you know, so... Uh, books are always a collaborative effort and the writers understand that. And, and therefore um, writing workshops, especially, um, you know, in sort of more academic settings where people uh, uh, maybe not used to that kind of collaboration. 
are really, uh, I think, a very important thing to do, and 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 you know, and to sort of institute in um, uh, in graduate education for anthropology. So that there's not a whole lot of uh, ethnographic writing courses uh, in undergraduate or undergrad uh, and graduate uh, anthropology. And I think uh, we need more of those, quite frankly. Yeah, so I have uh, one more question, and it is about writing. Um, and because you do a considerable amount of public writing as well, and mm-hmm. in, in the book, even you mentioned blogging, and you've, you've also written a book about your public writing. And, you know, I think this is so, you know, important now, As and you talk about anthropologists need to get our insights um, out into the world. I wondered how you made your way um, into, into public writing and do, does your writing shift at all when you're when you're writing for the public versus writing an anthropological book? Okay, uh, that, that's a great question. Um, I around 2010, I had you know published a bunch of books, I did a bunch of articles, and um, I was getting frustrated because uh, uh, no one seemed to be reading what I was writing, and I put all this effort into writing these articles for this journal or that journal or several books. And, um, you know, and uh, I would go to meetings and I say, you know, they, they, people would say, well, uh, I saw your article uh, in such and such a journal. I said, well, thank you. Um, um, you know, and I said, did you read it? He said, well, no, uh, I, I saw it, but I haven't read it. Right. And so, you know, in, in, in years past, people would have these long, you know, kind of long sort of debates and, uh, conversations about these kinds of things, uh, and today's distracted world is less of that. So I got kind of I got frustrated, and then uh, I have a dear friend. Um, well, um, I, uh, uh, I, I, I she suggested that I you know, try blogging, and so the first thing I did was I I blogged. Uh, I, I was I was taking a trip to Niger, and I went. Uh, I hadn't been there in a long time, and I. And I did a blog as sort of like a chronicle of my trip. And uh, I had a, a, a private blog, you know, World WordPress blog. And uh, uh, no one seemed to be reading that. And uh, I would get more, I get, uh, you know, maybe two or three people, maybe 10 people responding to my blog posts. And I get lots and lots of spam. I mean, tons of spam. Um, and so my friend, uh, uh, who's a wonderful writer herself, uh, Gina, uh, Gina Ulysse, um, who had been writing for the Huffington Post said, well, why don't you try, you know, why don't you try blogging for them? So I did a pitch and, um, they accepted it. And then I, I, I blogged for them for about 10, 10 years or so, or eight, eight, eight to 10 years, uh, on all kinds of things, uh, uh, on politics, uh, on, uh, higher education, uh, well-being, uh, West Africa, also uh, African politics, and um, you know, and I was amazed that um, that on some some of the blogs I did, I would get you know huge responses of you know uh, three thousand three thousand reposts, you know, and uh, maybe eighty to ninety thousand people reading what I was writing. And very often what I would, you know, when I did, I, I did a lot on during the, uh, the election of 2000, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 2012, uh, when Obama was running and, uh, you know, I did, I did a lot on, you know, the, uh, the Trump years and up to a point. And, 
and I was using anthropological concepts and reaching. You know, and so in one case, for, for like the debt ceiling, which is going to be a problem in the coming weeks, I used uh, to, to analyze the, the, the sort of uh, stalemate. I used Gregory Bates's notion of schismogenesis, to, mm-hmm. you know, which fit perfectly this, this scenario. So I was doing those kinds of things. Um, and, um, and then I, you know, the things changed at the Huffington Post and I, I, I now blog periodically for psychology today on well-being. And, um, so, uh, what uh, blogging is, uh, you reach more people, uh, but you have to, you have a, you have to be very economical in what you do. Most blogs are 850 to a thousand words, which is not a whole lot of words. And so you have to be really very uh, precise and, and you can't really, uh, you give, so you may expand your audience, but you give up uh, nuance, academic nuance, let's say. So that's not, not a good thing. So there, you know, there are pros and cons, but I found that because of having blogged for so long, I feel that it has improved my prose. It's made it more, uh, precise, more uh, uh, focused than it was before. So uh, for me, it's been a great exercise uh, in doing that. And so you have to give up jargon. You have to be very, very, you know, you know write short sentences and realize that your uh, your your audience is a general audience rather than a academic one. And uh, so you need to, you know, uh, uh, Use narrative also in a blog. My, some of my most, uh, some like I, I wrote one blog about poverty in in America, but I used it as my, riding a Greyhound bus from uh, Atlanta, Georgia to, um, uh, you know, um, uh, where was where did I go uh, mm-hmm. to um, Asheville, North Carolina, and I was you know this uh, middle class white guy on the bus, and it was filled with. Uh, uh, Immigrants, uh, poor people, um, people who didn't have a whole lot of money, and there was me, and so this 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 was a vision of America that was, you know, for me, it was hidden in a sense. But there it was, right there in front of us, you know, and it's there every day on the bus. And so um, I used the 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 ride to talk about the, the how we close our eyes to poverty. So it, it was a, a mini sort of ethnography of a bus ride. But it enabled me to talk anthropologically about the problems of poverty in the United States. So I think it's you know I think it's a great thing for people to do um, to do that, and uh, ultimately it, it improves uh, one's writing. Often in my writing workshops, I, um, I I have one half a day that we devote uh, devote or a day to uh, doing a blog. So we. we you know, I say, you know, use your ethnographic experience to write about uh, some kind of public policy debate or a political issue. And, uh, you know, some of the results are, you know, some people have published stuff based on that uh, exercise. So it's been, a, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very, very glad that I've uh, done that. And, uh, and I think that uh, we need to be more, uh, in these, these times, we need to be more public than we've been in the past. And to reward uh, public engagement as well, uh, institutionally. Um, so thank you so much for for talking with us about your book. Um, you've been a prolific writer of books. You you said sixteen books earlier. I said eleven, so I was I was incorrect. Sixteen books. 
other articles and public work. Um, I saw an exhibition that you did at Westchester University about your work there. And so my, my last question is after Wisdom from the Edge, what are you planning next? Well, uh, I am uh, I'm I'm working on a book about uh, it's tentatively called Healing Stories, and I, I'm interested in what makes a person a healer. Uh, how uh, you know how do how how do they come to a, li a life of healing? Whether they're a physician or uh, a healer like my my teacher Adama Janitongo, um, and what is it what what is it about um, a person that enables them to learn this kind of thing and also bear the burden of doing it. So I have a, I have a uh, so I've got a book idea. Well, in this book, I'm going to try to juxtapose images of healers and healing to text the way that sort of Ruth Bahar does in An Island Called Home and the way that uh, Philippe, uh, Gorgois does in uh, Righteous Dope Fiend and some, another, uh, some other people where there's going to be sort of like a conversation between the, the image and the text. Um, and I have, you know, I, I'm going to talk about uh, a wide variety of healers, some, uh, some who are uh, physicians, some who are um, uh, non-physician healers, uh, but also I'm going to talk about uh, the uh, healing narratives and I'm going to uh, hopefully write about um, healing spaces. Uh, there are places that people go to to be healed, by, you know, like, a, like a healing well, for example, in Ireland are healing wells. So, uh, so it's, you know, it's just, I'm right at the beginning of this. I'm just uh, sort of jotting out the job, uh, but I'll be working on this in the next, uh, next year, year and a half. Uh, until I, you know, I should, you know, I should maybe finish it sometime in 2025. I'm also interested in doing uh, a podcast uh, on two two kinds of things in my podcast that I want to do once I get everything together. Uh, one would be to you know have a, uh, a podcast on writing social life, where I invite writers, you know, creative nonfiction writers and ethnographers to talk about their writing practices uh, in a podcast. But I also want to talk, um, have one, you know, have a podcast on healing as well. So invite healers, talk about their practices and how they came to be healers. So uh, those are those are things that I'm thinking about doing in the future. Wow. Well, so we will definitely look out for that, for the book on healing yeah. and then for these future podcasts. And then we hope that we can have, I can have you back on this podcast to talk about the, the new book um, as well. So that would be a great uh, pleasure. Yes, we will look out for that. So thank you so much for sharing about this book and, and your work. Um, I'm Reagan Gillum. I've been speaking with Dr. Paul Stoller, who's the author of the book, Wisdom from the Edge, Writing Ethnography in Turbulent Times, published by Cornell University Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk with you.